if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea 2, we are currently in a study of the Old Testament minor prophets, 12 books in the Old Testament, 12 prophets that speak into the nations of Israel and Judah during the era of what is known as the divided kingdom and then on into the exile, into Babylon, and finally the return from Babylon. Uh, We're in our third book now of this study. We started with Jonah, we then went to Amos, and now we're in Hosea. And we're effectively going in chronological order of events. And um, if you were here last week, uh, it it was pretty unforgettable. If last week's sermon was a Friends episode, it would have been called the one where Weston says whore a lot. Um, If you weren't here and that doesn't make any sense to you, uh, last week we met the book Hosea's namesake, and we also learned of this incredible thing that God had called him to do, which was to marry a promiscuous woman and to have children of promiscuity. And so we said that word a lot in the course of just reading the scripture. And this marriage to the woman Gomer and their ensuing children formed the foundation of this book. They formed the foundation of Hosea's prophecy. And his prophecy is ultimately directing us to the fact that Israel has also been promiscuous. Israel has also gone, as the scripture says, whoring after other gods, and that she also has had children of promiscuity. And what we said was that the primary message here from God is, Israel, you are unfaithful, but I love you anyway. However, God's love for Israel doesn't mean that Israel won't face consequences for her her unfaithfulness. It does, however, mean that God will keep his covenant, the covenant that he originally made with Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. God will keep his covenant, and he has plans for the restoration of Israel, but, but maybe not in the way you think. The restoration that God is planning for Israel is to effectively create a new Israel, a new people that he is taking for himself, calling to himself. And he is doing this not through a a human king like David or Solomon. He is doing this ultimately through Christ. And in this new Israel, it won't just be people who are ethnically Hebrew. Scripture says it will be people from all nations. That's what the book of Amos told us. It's what we see on into the New Testament. One of the continual refrains from God to Israel throughout the Old Testament is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. God says this in some form or fashion at least 25 times in the pages of Scripture. And it's a foundational part of God's covenant with Israel. This notion that he and no one else is God, and that he is claiming a people for himself. You know, Abraham didn't go find God. Abraham didn't leave the land that he grew up in and venture off towards the land of Canaan, a land that he didn't know, because he was on some kind of spiritual or existential quest. He wasn't trying to find God. Instead, God came and found him and called him and sent him. And and God repeatedly tells Israel that he has done the same thing with him that he did with Abraham. And and he he like refers to them as his property. 
He calls them a treasured possession or a people for his possession or a people for his inheritance. That language comes up over and over again. A key verse here is Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And that's almost like a marriage vow. Like I take you, you are mine. Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 2 Samuel 7, and you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. 1 Chronicles 17, and you made your people Israel to be your people forever, O Lord, and you, O Lord, became their God. This, this, Same thing, just over and over and over again, and on into the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, they all use this language. And on into the New Testament, uh, John's prophecy of what is to come that we read in the Revelation, he says in chapter 21 of Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So this is the basic storyline of the Bible at its most kind of 30,000 foot uh, view. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you're fancy, you call that the meta-narrative of Scripture. And, and in this meta-narrative, in creation, God and man are united, right? In the very beginning, in the garden, God is not absent. God is not somewhere else. God is present and together with the man and the woman. Scripture says that God would walk like in the cool of the day with the man and the woman in the garden. He was their God. They were his people. But then the man and the woman sever that bond through their disobedience. It's forever broken as a result. And then we experience the consequences of this. As the man and the woman sever this bond, even when God takes a particular ethnic group, the Hebrews, to be his people, they can't seem to make him their God, can they? If you've read the story of the Old Testament, because of the effects of the fall, because of the wake of the fall, even when God himself saves and calls a people to himself, they can't seem to make him their God, even after everything he's done for them. If you think about the Israelites being rescued from Egypt, think of all of the incredible things that they saw in order to just leave Egypt and to get out into the Sinai Desert. 
right? They had seen all of the plagues that had come on Egypt. They had seen uh, the Passover take place. They had witnessed this retreat or this, this fleeing away from Egypt with the armies of Pharaoh pursuing them. They witnessed the Red Sea being parted and the armies of Pharaoh being decimated. They witnessed water coming out of rocks in the wilderness, meat coming in the form of quail just out of nowhere when they're at their hungriest. They see all of these incredible things. And then the moment... The moment the notion that maybe God isn't real or maybe God has abandoned them or maybe God has brought them out there to die, the moment that that happens, they melt down their their jewelry and make a golden calf and bow down to it. Like it's almost farcical as you read the account because you think, how in the world, after everything that you've seen, after all of the blessings, like look at where you were and where you are now. And, and here in, in a very short amount of time, you're, you're bowing down to something that you just made yourself. And the thing is, is we, we're inclined to look at that and go, what in the world is going on? Like how in the world could they do that? And yet, guys, I'm convinced that I do the exact same thing, that we all do the exact same thing. No matter what God has done for us, no matter what we've seen, we are inclined to forget it. We're inclined to not remember. That's why one of the primary things we do every week in coming to the Lord's table and taking communion is about remembering what God had done or what he has done through Christ. So the man and the woman in the garden, they severed this bond, and and then what comes are the results of that. Sin and suffering and death and longing and anxiety and worry and violence and on and on and on. And what happens in the story of the Old Testament is that this sort of becomes like a cyclical thing for the nation of Israel. They're just constantly at some point in this cycle. At the top of the cycle, they trust the Lord. He's their God. But then at some point, they sin against him and abandon him. And so as a result, they face punishment. But eventually, God relents and sends some kind of redeemer. And they come back to this place of trusting God again. And then the cycle repeats itself. If you've ever read the book of Judges, this cycle is prominently on display in the book of Judges. And and in a bigger way, just kind of on display constantly throughout the Old Testament. And some of you may be in a cycle like this right now. I don't know. You may look at your life and feel like, man, I, 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 like I'm at a place in this where, where God is doing something, where he's saying something to me in my life. But we see this throughout the Old Testament. But then we get to the New Testament, we get to the Gospels, and we find that God is ultimately, and, and this is what's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, God is ultimately sending a Redeemer who has a name, and his name is Christ. He is sending a Redeemer who will ultimately reconcile us to God forever so that this cycle is kind of done away with. It isn't this cycle of I trusted him and then I sinned and now there has to be some sort of atonement for my sin, such as the whole sacrificial system we see in the Old Testament. No, no, no. Through Christ, there is this once and for all sacrifice. No longer are you going to have to sacrifice rams and bulls and goats and all of these things every year on the Day of Atonement, but now through Christ, The sacrifice is made forever. 
We have now experienced a Passover, those of us who have faith in Christ. We've experienced a Passover where the blood of Christ is is effectively swabbed over the doorway of our hearts. And so death is passing us by. And what we're taking on as a result is life eternal. But we're not experiencing this fully yet, are we? So sometimes the language that's used, I'm not going to bother writing it down, but sometimes the language that is used here to describe this is that we're living in a place of already but not yet. Already but not yet. We're living in the wake of redemption. Redemption is to be found in Jesus Christ. But it's not fully realized yet for us. And so our redemption is secured, it's sealed, and all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we aren't currently experiencing full physical restoration. That is still yet to come. Jesus will return, and he will bring with him a new heaven and a new earth, and all things will be made right. And God and man will once again be in union together. That's what we read just a minute ago in Revelation 21. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is is the story arc of the scripture. This is what God is ultimately accomplishing through Christ, is to, in some ways, take us back to the way things were originally when he created this place his creation to be with him. So with those things in mind, what in the world does that have to do with Hosea 2? Turn there with me, Hosea 2. We're going to begin in verse 2 and read through verse 16. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, And make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, So that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. 
declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. The word of the Lord. So, so suddenly we've gone from like a pseudo-biographical sketch in chapter 1 where we meet Hosea and his wife Gomer and these three children that he has, Jezreel and Lo-Ruhamah, whose uh, translated name is Not My People, or No Mercy, rather, and then Lo-Ami, the last one, the son, whose name is translated um, uh, not my, No Mercy and Not My People. Um, so, so he has these three children, and what we said was Hosea's life is like this living metaphor for what's going on in the nation of Israel, right? That, that they have gone after other gods, that they have, in a sense, been spiritually promiscuous, they've abandoned the law of God, they've abandoned the worship of Yahweh, and so as a result, the offspring of that is that you are not my people, and I will have no mercy on those who are not my people. And, and the firstborn, whose name was Jezreel, uh, describes a place where the Assyrians would eventually sweep in and overtake the nation of Israel and scatter them to the wind. So, so we've gone from like a biographical sketch to today's text, which is like a poetic narrative in a way. And is honestly more reflective of how the rest of this book is. It's, it's like this narrative about a husband calling out to his wayward wife. However, the characters here are not Hosea and Gomer. They are God and Israel. In the way Exodus 6-7 sounded like a marriage vow, I take you, this almost sounds like a divorce decree, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. But it's really the cry of a husband who loves his wife and wants her to turn from her unfaithfulness. Sometimes we struggle with the notion that God is love because our understanding of what love is has been twisted by our culture or shaped by our culture. Sometimes we're inclined to think that true love is me getting exactly what I want or other people doing for me exactly what I want or for me to love other people well, I have to do exactly what they want. But God loves at a totally different level. God is not primarily concerned with giving us what we want. God is primarily concerned with giving us what we most need. The act of unlove here, the act of hatred here, would be to not plead for the case of this mother, to not plead for the case of Israel, to not call out to her and, and, to, and to let her know like what she's headed for in terms of consequences and to not seek to draw her back in. That would be unloving. That would truly be hateful. But in love, we're reaching out, like we're crying out, we're pleading the Lord is doing this through his prophet Hosea, through his words and through his life. Plead with your mother. Plead. 
So there's this call for her repentance, for her to turn from the path that she's on and to turn back to God. But there are also clear consequences for her not doing that. That's a lot of what this text is. Verse 3, lest I strip her naked uh, and make her as in the day she was born. Like, and, and so, we're again, speaking metaphorically here, eventually Israel would, in a sense, be totally ransacked. Like the Assyrians would eventually come in and just scrape the ground. Like they would just destroy everything. Cities, people, those that they didn't kill, they just carried off. And, and it becomes this like, who knows, who knows where they went? The tribes that were represented in this northern territory of Israel never come back together in the way that they were. And so there is a very real sense that this comes to pass, where that she becomes like a wilderness like a parched land, that she is killed with thirst. Upon her children, he says, also I will have no mercy, because they're children of whoredom, for their mother has done this. They've been conceived and they've acted shamefully. So it's strong language, but look at verse 5, and this is really where I want to camp out today. Verse 5, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, shall say I will go and return to my first husband." Only when, like every other path is thwarted, then she will say, I will return and go to my husband. For it was better for me than now. Remind you of like the prodigal son? Like only at the bitter, like only at the rock bottom point where there's no other alternative, no other thing to do, no other course of action do you go, I guess I'll get up and go back to my father. Verse eight. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So last week, we talked about taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, and the notion that taking the Lord's name in vain is not necessarily about using God's name as a curse word, so much as taking the Lord's name is about taking on the name of God when he is not in actuality your king. Like taking on his moniker or identifying yourself with him when the truth underneath the surface is he is not my Lord. He's not my master. That is what the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments are talking about when they talk about the sin of taking the Lord's name in vain. If you believe the Lord's name will benefit you in some way, whether socially or financially or whatever the case may be, taking on his name when he's not really your Lord, is something the scripture considers to be sin. And, and what we said last week is because we live in the midst of like a, like a Christian culture um, where, where it's normalized that people just go to church and kind of casually participate in religious things, the fear is, and this could be the case for many of us, the temptation in this part of the country is that we will take on the Lord's name because it benefits us socially or it gets our family off our back or, or whatever, but yet just continue life where we are really our master, not him. Does that, does that make sense? So that's what we talked about last week. Today, the problem lies in attributing what God has done to someone else 
or to something else. It's, it's not recognizing or appreciating his provision and his power in your life by giving yourself uh, to something else um, or worshiping something else or, or giving something, somebody else the glory that's ultimately due to God. So, so one of the questions that we ask around here, Justin talked about this earlier. We had not planned this, but Justin mentioned that we asked this question, where have you seen God at work? Like that's, that's like a foundational question for us. And the reason why we ask that question, as he said, is because we're trying to cultivate lives where we're like aware of God's presence on the daily. That we're aware of his movement and his action. The scriptures talk about praying without ceasing, but that doesn't necessarily mean actively talking to God constantly. It's more about living in like a continual state of awareness of his presence, a state of both speaking and listening. Um, Some people would describe this as walking with him. The problem for us, though, is that we are so distracted, and yet because we're living in this already but not yet place, we have unprecedented access to him. Like access to God through Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, access to God that honestly mankind has not had since the days of the garden. And yet so many of us are totally missing what is available to us because we are so distracted, because we are not cultivating lives where we are truly walking with him and experiencing his presence, cultivating lives where we have an increasing awareness of his presence and his work. The thing that's fascinating to me about Israel is that they were deeply religious people. Like, the problem was that they just wanted to worship false gods instead of the one true God. And with us, I think the same thing is true. We just get religious about other things. Right? For many of us, the temptation is not so much other actual religions, it's, it's other stuff, meaning we allow our lives to revolve around other things. We allow our lives to center around other things, work, uh, kids, sex, addictions, school, CrossFit, you know, like you've met those people, it's like a religion to them. So rather than cultivating a life with God, a life that truly is lived around him, that centers on him through Christ, we instead try to like squeeze him into lives that are largely being lived without him. If at this moment you are doing the most religious thing you've done all week, that could be an indicator that maybe I'm like trying to squeeze God into my life that I'm primarily living without him. If we've prayed more in the last 30 minutes than you have all week, that could be an indicator. God's not interested in being an addendum to your life. God's not interested in being like a hobby in your life. He's not interested in you making time for him. He desires your whole life and your days to flow from a place of deep rootedness in him. This is what all of Jesus' talk about abiding in the vine is all about. Not just knowing the right answers to questions, 
Not just using his name when it's expeditious for you, but truly living in a place of deep rootedness, abiding. Because when we're disconnected from that, it becomes so easy to forget where all the good gifts in our lives actually come from. With Israel, though, it wasn't simply that they weren't living with an awareness of God, but rather that they were taking the glory that was due to God for his provision, and they were actively giving that glory to other gods. They were actively attributing to other gods the things that the Lord had done. And that's the irony of this whole situation. The source of the provision was Yahweh, like water, wine, flax, like all of these things that he mentions here. The source of all of that was Yahweh, but rather than recognizing and worshiping him for what he had done, the people had become deluded to the point where they honestly thought their food and their grain and their oil and their wine was actually coming from these gods that they had literally manufactured. Now, how do we do this today? How do we do that same thing today? Is it possible that we miss or fail to fully appreciate the fact that our food, our homes, our children, our clothing, that, that all of those things have actually come from the Lord? Is, is it possible that many of us walk through our days without even thinking twice about those things as if we're entitled to them? As if the Lord hasn't done something miraculous and gracious for us? And giving us the lives that he has. Who gets the glory for that in your life? Where does the glory go? Does it go to you? And your hard work or your intelligence or your experience? Does it go to someone else? Does it go to your family? Does it go to your work? Or do you even stop to think about it? I want to close this morning with three spiritual practices that are designed to like reformat our distracted brains and hearts. You know, the Apostle Paul says that we should be transformed by what? The renewal of our minds. And mental transformation is directly connected to the things you think about, to the things you imbibe, or ingest to the things you do. Christianity so often gets pegged as being like moralistic babble, and yet the basic premise here is that we're going to refrain from things that are dark and sinful, not just because they're dark and sinful, but because when that's where our mind is, our heart's going to follow more than likely. And so by reframing, reformatting being transformed mentally, we begin to move in the right direction. The first spiritual practice is fasting. For many of us in this room, this could be something you have never done in your life, at least in a biblical sense. Um, Jesus seems to assume that his followers are going to fast once he's gone. He seems to assume that this is going to be one of the practices that they undertake. Um, And I think it's one of the most drastic of the spiritual disciplines, and yet it is so rewarding, and it's not hard to grasp. I mean, fasting is simply not eating. 
but it creates a physical awareness of your need for God that most of us who never miss a meal simply don't have, right? Like this internal physical remembrance. A traditional day of fasting, like what would have been practiced in the early church, would have been from sundown to sundown. So you eat dinner tonight and don't eat breakfast and lunch tomorrow and then eat dinner tomorrow night. And if you're able, man, I would, I would encourage you, if it's something you feel led to do, to shoot for practicing this one day a week. To, 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 not to put on a show, not to make a big deal out of it to other people, but to simply seek the Lord and to seek the spiritual growth that can come from continually being physically reminded of the fact that were it not for God, I don't eat today. And my family doesn't eat today. One of the earliest existing Christian documents from the era of the early church uh, outside of the New Testament is a kind of a small book called the Didache. It was written maybe 100, 200 years after the time of Christ. And the Didache suggests that early Christians fasted two days a week, which was a traditional Jewish practice. So the Jews would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and the Christians said, well, we don't want to be like the Jews, and so they fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. So big change. Um, But the evidence seems to be that that was a practice that early Christians engaged in, and it was a part of their weekly life. And so I'd really encourage you guys, if you've never done it, um, it's not not drinking coffee. It's not saying, I'm not going to drink alcohol for a while, as, as people are inclined to do, but, but literally saying, I'm not going to eat. If it's something you're able to do, I'd encourage you. Next would be set times of daily prayer. Um, if you're somebody who maybe only prays if you sit down to a meal, then I would really encourage you to look at this. What are the times of the day that you could literally mark out on your calendar and say, these are times of prayer for me? If you're somebody like me, this is something that I need. Historically, this is known as the daily office. Um, Set times of prayer when you wake up uh, around midday, lunchtime, at the end of the workday, and then before bed. Um, that, that there are like four obvious like transition points in your day when it's appropriate to just stop and say, I'm, I'm going to take a few moments here, a few minutes to pray and to spend time with the Lord. And prayer is a learned skill. You may feel like I'm not good at prayer. I don't really know how to pray well. But I would encourage you to just start by saying, I'm, I'm going to make it a point, even if I don't feel like I do it well, we're, we're all like learning I told a, a coach of mine once, man, I just want to, I want to be good at praying. And he was kind of like, what does that mean? Like, how do you, how do you like win at praying? You know? And, and I, but, but that's, that's my mindset. Like, I, I want to, I, I feel like I'm not great at this and I want to get better at this. And, and for me, prayer can be one of those things that just like shines a light on unbelief that I have. Like, does this really work? Is there really a God who's listening to us and responding to us? Like, so, so prayer is something that requires your faith, right? It, it requires for you to step out there and say, Lord, I'm going I'm to place my petitions at your feet, and I'm going to seek to listen to you as well. What would it look like for you to just say, hey, in the morning and in the evening, I'm going to pray, or at lunchtime every day, I'm going to pray, and you put it on your calendar, and you do it and it becomes how you live your life. And then finally, the last thing I'll mention is just daily meditation. Uh, so just a couple weeks ago, we did a men's prayer retreat. Uh, we practiced something called Lectio Divina, 
uh, or sacred reading where uh, we just would sit with the Word of God and, and spend time with it, and we would ruminate on it. If you're, if you're somebody who lays in bed at night and have a, you have a hard time turning your brain off and you just keep thinking about the same things over and over again, psychologists call that rumination. I'm just, it's like a cow chewing its cud just over and over and over again. And, and the idea in Christian meditation is that we would take the Word of God and do that. Like that we would literally just mull it over, that we would allow it to just, we would just sit with it and think about it and turn it over in our minds and like kind of just center our life around it. That we're not just reading the scriptures for intellectual purposes or to get an account of a historical event, but that we're truly looking to it as the word of God and a word that will change us. Friends, the Lord has done incredible things for us. He's done incredible things in my life, in your life, in, our, in the young life of our church as well. But the primary thing he's done for us has been to give his only son so that we can be reconciled to him and receive and walk in his Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that we refuse to give him glory is by not giving him our time and attention which is to not recognize his incredible provision through Christ. And so I want to plead with you today and and plead with myself today also. Repentance is not simply about not sinning or sinning less or being more moral. Repenting is all about reorienting, reorienting the whole of your life around the things of God. It's about turning from the path you were on and and truly being born again, becoming a new person. So, so what is God's true place in your life? Like, is, is he at the center? Are you seeking increasingly to make him the center of things, or is he more of an addendum? What are the changes, guys, that you need to make in order to give him the place of honor and glory that he truly deserves? Let's go to him in prayer. Ask him to give us guidance and wisdom as we seek to do those things and as we seek to follow his will. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the truth of your word. And God, this is a a challenging one for me. Because I recognize my own proclivity to be distracted by everything other than you. And to justify some of those things by, by saying, well, they're good things. And yet, Father, we know that you've called us to live in a place of complete dependence on you and a place of resting in you, and a place of finding our identity in you. And yet everything in our world and our culture, even those things that seem good, God, can unintentionally, just through our own sin, pull us away, through the work of the enemy, pull us away. Because we want to go after success or the next, the next job, or we want to go after money, or we want to go after notoriety, or we want to go after a certain family situation or we want to go after things or material possessions. God, there are so many things that distract us. And God, I pray that for each person here today, you would wake us up to whatever that is in our lives. God, what are the ways that we are tempted to go off on our own path? What are the ways that we're tempted to abandon you? And Father, we pray that through your grace, through your great love, Father, that you would make our hearts aware and that you would draw us lovingly back into your fold. 
Father, help us to center our lives on you and not in some sort of surfacey kind of way, but God, by truly engaging in spiritual practices every day, through reading your word, through spending time with you in prayer, through meditating on your word, through fasting, through all of these different disciplines, through coming together with the body of Christ and bearing one another's burdens and living life together, God, in the way you've called us. God, help us to do those things through the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Stand with us and let us worship him.